Welcome to Empower Half an Hour, a mental health podcast that brings firsthand interviews and testimonies to you. Hello, everyone. My name is Brandon Spatz, and I am your host of Empower Half an Hour. Today with us, we have Brittany Long. Brittany is a senior program coordinator of the Atomist Board in Montgomery County. She's involved in many trainings. Uh, she facilitates and coordinates mental health and suicide prevention trainings, co-leads Montgomery County Prevention Coalition's Opioid Prevention Committee, Chair of the Overdose Actions Team's Education and Information Branch. Um, welcome, Brittany. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Absolutely. I wanted to get started by talking about your decision to go into the career that you are currently in. What were some of the reasons you picked going into the major in college, and what was your major? Sure. So honestly, it was kind of accidental. I was actually a hospitality management major and had to take a social work uh, elective. And when I was in that class, they had a um, social work career fair. And so they had different organizations set up and um, you could go around at the different tables and kind of find out about the different careers. And I met my mentor, uh, Ron Regelsberger, uh, that night and started volunteering uh, for a program called Building Bridges in the Juvenile Court. And within a month, I decided to change my career, uh, changed my major uh, to sociology, uh, finished up at Sinclair with a sociology degree, and then went on to Wright State to get my uh, Bachelor of Arts in sociology with a criminal justice minor. So at that point, I was really um, focused on being a probation officer, and I actually spent 19 years with Montgomery County Juvenile Court as a probation officer and a community engagement coordinator. All of the young people that I worked with um, had a mental health diagnosis or a substance use diagnosis, and what I saw was that um, there was a lot more work to be done, a lot more that we could do on the prevention end so that these young people never got involved with the court system, ideally. Um, and so I started finding ways to train and to educate myself. Um, I became a strength-based train-the-trainer through the court. Um, I also became a mental health first aid trainer. Uh, so that's been about seven years ago and uh, trained doing that on the side. Um, and then a position opened up at the Alcohol Drug Addiction Mental Health Services Board for a full-time training position about three and a half, four years ago. And so I went ahead and applied and have been doing this work ever since. Uh, so I get to focus a lot on training, behavioral health professions, as, as well as the general community. Um, and doing a lot of suicide prevention training and working a lot with our first responders. Um, so our law enforcement, uh, fire, EMS, and veterans um, locally. So it was really accidental how I fell into this, but uh, it is an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to support some of our most vulnerable um, members of our community and to spread the word that people do recover and um, that help is available. So. It's definitely a complete change from where you were in hospitality. 
How is it working with law enforcement and the court system? Is it still your day-to-day job? Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard. I, I wear many hats, um, but I consider our law enforcement one of our vulnerable populations as well. Um, when, you know, everybody else was sent home to quarantine during COVID, uh, those guys were still working, right? And we know that um, our law enforcement um, sees people in some of their worst states ever. And oftentimes they don't have the skills to let that stuff go and, and to process that so that they don't take it home with them. Um, our corrections officers, our law enforcement, um, and our fire EMS and our veterans, they have higher suicide rates than the general public. Um, experiencing that trauma on a day-to-day basis rewires their brain. And so it's really important that we support them and make sure that there's resources available for them in the community um, and that they know that there's help available and that there's programs out there. And so we really work hard to try to create relationships between our first responders and those individuals with lived experience with mental health or substance use challenges so that they can see each other as people and build those relationships so that, you know, goodness forbid you're in the community and there's a crisis, hopefully there's a relationship there and we can get that person connected to help rather than just slapping cuffs on them and putting them in jail. Those relationships are incredibly important to help prevent any type of violent approaches. Words can go a long way in any situation involving law enforcement and people with mental health disorders when talking about ways to respond to a crisis. Let's talk a little bit about mental health first aid and the acronym ALGEE. What do those mean in terms of mental health? Yeah, absolutely. So mental health first aid really teaches you how to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges, as well as what do we do in a crisis situation. Um, It really focuses on recovery and resiliency and letting people know, like I said already, that individuals experiencing these challenges can and do get better. Now, the ALGE acronym stands for um, ASSESS, so we are always assessing, we're looking at the situation, is there a risk for suicide or harm? Listening non-judgmentally, you know, sometimes people listen to respond, they don't really listen to learn and to hear what that person is sharing, and so that's an important skill that we like to build in in mental health first aid. Um, encourage appropriate, or sorry, give uh, give reassurance and information. We like to call this hope plus facts, right? So I don't necessarily need your advice, but if you can give me some hope that people do recover, that there's help out there, that I'm not alone, and you can call this number or you can go to this place, um, that's really hope and facts. And hope, although it's really hard to conceptualize, is so powerful in somebody's recovery journey. And then we the E and the E is encourage appropriate professional help and encourage self-help and other strategies. Oftentimes, there are things that we can do to help ourselves um, to manage our symptoms and to function in the community um, and to interact with those around us. And so, um, The stigma around mental health is that everybody has to be medicated or everybody has to be going to counseling five times a week, right? Um, And why I am a strong, strong um, supporter of therapy and encourage anybody and everybody to go to therapy. Um, That isn't everybody's journey. 
And so if we can let people know that your journey looks different than the other person's um, and that there are different options out there, um, that's really what mental health first aid is all about. Now, it's an eight hour training, so it's a long one, um, but you get a three year certification that can stay with you and it's your certification. Uh, So even if you took it through work or um, through another organization, that is your certification. Um, And and then you're equipped with the skills. Um, Oftentimes it is not knowing. So we don't say anything. We don't intervene. And we know that the average time between somebody starting to feel unwell and actually getting treatment can be 10 years. So if a layman like myself, you know, I'm not a licensed counselor, but if I can notice and recognize those early signs and symptoms, I may be able to connect somebody to help before it starts to impact their life and they lose their job or lose relationships or get in trouble with the law. Um, Ideally, we want to intervene early. So the more people that are equipped with those skills in the community, the better. Absolutely. You said some really important things regarding the 10-year mark. It's so true. We've experienced symptoms that with our mental health, and it just doesn't get treated soon enough. We struggle so long before we get to that recovery stage. You mentioned that medication and therapy doesn't work for everyone. Everyone's recovery looks so different. I've talked to so many people in the past 15 years of my mental health journey, Everyone I've talked to has a different combination that works for them. What works for me probably doesn't work for you. It's important that we have community members trained to be able to help. Who generally takes the suicide prevention training that you facilitate? So really, our trainings are free and open to the public for the most part. Um, We do train a lot of people that work in the mental health and addiction field. Um, So behavioral health specialists, licensed clinicians, um, even though mental health first aid is for uh, the lay person, as is most of our suicide prevention training, um, the clinicians can benefit um, from these added skills and these tools to put in their tool belts. Uh, Case managers, you know, our trash, our guys who are out collecting our trash, um, the people that are working in HR and answering questions. Um, So really a wide variety, anybody and everybody, can take our class. Peers. Um, In the state of Ohio, we have one of the largest number of peer support specialists. And so we do a lot of trainings for them to keep their continuing education and things like that. So I really can't pinpoint one group. Um, We touch a wide variety of people, although we do target um, those behavioral health professionals. Um, Any person can come and take a class, a parent who's concerned, uh, teachers. We do a lot of trainings for teachers um, as well. That's incredible. What kind of time commitment does the suicide prevention training take and what type of topics are covered in the training? Sure, sure. So actually, if there is any way um, to encourage people to check out Montgomery County Adamus website and go to the training page, you can follow our page and get alerts on all of our new trainings. And this is not going to be an exhausted list. Um, but besides mental health first aid, now that is a that is a full day commitment. Um, sometimes we offer it in two half days, um, but that is one of the larger commitments. We have QPR suicide prevention training. It can be one hour to two hours 
hour. And it really focuses on asking the question um, and being willing to um, engage in that conversation if we're worried that somebody may be feeling suicidal. Um, we have self-care, and I'm going to touch on that hopefully a little bit later. Um, you can't pour from an empty cup. Um, taking care of yourself while taking care of others. Um, you know, as a behavioral health professional, self-care wasn't something that was talked about a lot in college, and they didn't teach us that oftentimes we give so much of ourselves that we're depleted, um, and so we don't have the energy to do the things that we enjoy or for our family and our friends, and so self-care has been a really important part of the last, um, I would say, five to seven years of my career, really making that a priority and setting boundaries, and so we like to share that with other people. Um, we also have some trainings like Bounce, Building Resiliency in Ourselves and Others, um, we have um, Mental Health 101, so just like a general overview of understanding mental health challenges, which is good for people that really don't have that background. Um, oh, goodness, I know I'm forgetting a ton of them, but uh, just a wide variety. And you can take them, you know, a half day, a full day. Oh, Trauma 101 um, and Trauma 101 in a youth setting. So understanding how trauma rewires our brain and um, how that can have long-term impacts on our behavior and um, health disparities, including leading up to early death. Um, we also like to focus, again, a lot on resiliency. And so the social resilience model is something uh, that we brought in a couple years ago, and we're getting ready to do another train the trainer on that. And that is really helping people understand that you can rewire your brain and create new processes um, to build your resiliency so that you can respond rather than react in stressful situations. Um, so that's just a little sneak peek, but I would definitely encourage people to go to the Adamus website and follow our training page. Absolutely. There are so many good ones you mentioned. For the people listening outside the state, does each individual state have programs in each county or is it harder to find? So actually in the state of Ohio, I can speak that um, every county is mandated to have an alcohol, drug addiction or a mental health recovery board of some sort. I believe that most states in the United States are set up that way. Um, so they could look up in their um, area, uh, mental health recovery board, um, alcohol, drug addiction, uh, mental health services board. It may have different language depending on where it is, but if they put in mental health and recovery board in my area, they should be able to pull something up. Now, I will say that we are very rich with resources here in Montgomery County, Brandon. Not all counties um, are as lucky as we are um, to be able to provide these services. Thank you to the Human Service Levy. Um, you know, we get funding to be able to serve our vulnerable citizens. And we also um, seek out federal um, state and local grants um, to better meet the needs of our citizens. So um, I would like to say I hope that everybody could find their mental health recovery board. I can't promise that they offer the same kind of services that we do. Now, there are national organizations that I would encourage people to look at if they can't find a mental health recovery board, um, such as NAMI, National Alliance for Mental Illness. Um, we have a local chapter here in Dayton, but those are nationwide, um, as well as uh, Mental Health America. America. Um, they offer trainings as well. So if you can't find something with your board locally, you should be able to look up some of those national organizations and pinpoint some things in your area. Thank you so much for all those great resources. Hopefully someone listening will be able to use the resources that you've shared. 
So we have talked about suicide prevention. I'm wondering what was your decision behind choosing suicide prevention as your main focus at Adamus Board? I'm guessing it goes back to college as well. Sure. Um, so I think looking back now, I didn't really realize it now, but my um, maternal grandfather died by suicide in 1977. Uh, it was not something that was talked about at that time and was not something that I learned about until I was much older. Um, I myself um, have mental health struggles, um, so I live with depression and anxiety every day. And so for me, it is um, coming from that lived experience standpoint um, and knowing that there are so many people out there hurting. Um, suicide is one of our most preventative deaths. And if we are equipped with just the guts to ask the question and to be willing to have the conversation, um, that can go a long way. What we know from people who have survived suicide attempts is that by somebody asking them the question, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? It was like a weight lifted off of their shoulder because somebody noticed and they noticed that I was hurting and they were willing to open up their heart to hear my pain um, and to help me get connected to, to what I need. So that's kind of my personal why. Um, professionally as well, I have lost um, young people that I've worked with and friends and colleagues to suicide, um, particularly one young man that was a fantastic graffiti artist um, that I worked with very closely and um, and so that really um, catapulted me into wanting to learn more and wanting to learn how I can share this information with others. Now, this being August 31st, I thought it would be nice to talk about it because September is Suicide Prevention Month. And like I said already, our community is hurting. I don't think we realized when we all got sent home from quarantine over two years ago um, the repercussions that that was going to have on um, our nation and our community's mental health and wellness. Um, and so there's a lot of people out there that are not okay. And they, we need more people be, to be willing to talk about this, um, just to notice like, hey, I've noticed you're not okay. You're not, you know, meeting with us every Wednesday for book club anymore. And I'm concerned about you. I love you. I think that a lot of times people think that we have to have um, all of these letters after our name, um, which thank God for those people. We need our therapists. We need our clinicians. Um, but anybody can save a life. We all have an opportunity to do that with the people around us or the people that we interact with in the community. And so I really wanted to focus on that and talking about um, what we can do, what are we looking for, um, and encouraging people to take care of themselves because so many of us are out here giving our all to everybody else that we don't often reflect and take care of ourselves in that process as well. Thank you so much for that good information. Especially just checking in on someone can make such an impact. I don't think some people realize how much words can make a difference in someone's life. Even just asking someone how they are doing can make a difference. With Suicide Prevention Month coming up in September, it's a good opportunity to take a look around and check in on someone. With Suicide Prevention Month coming up, I wanted to talk to you about some of the statistics for Montgomery County, Ohio. 
I believe you brought some with you today. Yeah. Um, so actually, we have lost um, 32 individuals to suicide in Montgomery County. Um, and that is just up until I think August 11th. Um, and so we won't obviously have the finalized stats. They, they have to make sure that all that stuff um, is finalized before they give the final 22 uh, 2022 report. Um, but yeah, 32 lost to suicide. The highest age range is between 25 and uh, 34 years old. So we also know um, that in 2019, that suicide was the number one cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds. And ongoing in the state of Ohio, um, suicide is the number two cause of death for 15 to 34 year olds. So that's a lot of pain that our community is experiencing, and they don't often know where to go for help. So if we can make it more common for us to talk about mental health and really work on reducing the stigma, um, because, you know, a lot of people either they're afraid I'm going to be judged. Um, you know, they're going to label me um, uh, for adults. I'm not going to get that promotion if I share this with my boss. Um, so if we can all collectively talk about this more often, we can work to reduce the stigma so that people don't have to sit in that pain alone and that they know that there's somebody that they can talk to. Um, so when we talk about numbers and statistics, I, I I like to just remind people that each one of those numbers is a human being. And that was a life. And that was somebody who had a mom, a dad, somebody that loved them, maybe siblings, people that cared about them. And so we get sometimes numb to statistics, I feel like. It's like, oh, another number. But if you think about that as a human life, and you think about that as the person that you love the most, you know, whether that be your parent, your grandparent, your child, your partner, um, think about it in that way, and you would want somebody to help them too. Right. So I think for so many, we think that this is a not right in front of us problem. This is doesn't happen in our family, but it does. Suicide is no discriminator of race, gender, where you live, how much money you have, what kind of car you drive or what your job is. It is an equal opportunity mode of death and people are hurting. So if we can let them know there's people to talk to, there's help available and that we are a safe space, whether that be you, whether that be me, but as individuals that we spread that message. Um, I know we've got a lot of work to do, but I think that we can really make some headway. Absolutely. Still a lot of work to be done, but each and every day, if we put more and more resources into it, I'm amazed how the ages are so young when we look at the statistics, especially being in the teenage years. You're so right. People don't talk about it enough. It affects so many of us, but it's not being talked as openly as it needs to be. I know a really big stigma is that guys can't talk about their feelings because society leads us to believe that you have to come across as this big, strong guy. But in reality, it's okay to talk about your feeling. It's okay to um, show emotion, even if you are a guy. We've done a real disservice societally 
um, for our men, you know, telling them, you know, boys don't cry, uh, pull up your bootstraps, those sorts of things. And um, besides our, our young adults, um, our men over 50 is, is our other highest rate of suicides because of those stigmas and societal norms that we have set. And so we do need to do some more work there and encouraging. I I, I have a son in his 20s and, and I like hearing him tell his friends, you know, love you, bro, you know, and, and that they're real and they're genuine about that. And I think um, that your generation, Brandon, and I don't know exactly how old you are, but I think that you guys are doing a much better job at saying, no, I'm a guy, but I got emotions and I feel and we can talk about it. Um, and again, the more we do that, the more we reduce that stigma, um, particularly for our men in talking about mental health, because it's not a sign of weakness. It's not. And, and that is that misperception that's out there. I mean, being a guy myself at 26 years old, I've been in and out of treatment most of my life. And it's okay to talk about it because it doesn't make you less of a man. It just takes time and practice, but it definitely is making the right decision when we're being open about how we feel. Well, and we wouldn't give a guy a hard time because they went to the doctor because they had a muscle ache, right? But, you know, so, and we really, we treat our physical health so different than our mental health, but we are one person. And so we need to encourage people to talk about that. Go to the doctor, talk about how you're feeling, not only physically, but mentally as well. Yeah. And if something's on your mind, you know, it's okay to ask a friend, whether it's a guy or a girl, you know, it's, it's fine to do that because, you know, it's, it's a human thing we have, you know, we all feel things. So we just, we just got to let people know. So I wanted to go back to suicide prevention. What are some of the warning signs that should be looked out for? Sure. So I think if it's it's a little different if it's somebody you have a relationship or somebody that's a complete stranger. OK, so if this is somebody that you have a relationship with, um, I don't like to use the word normal because none of us are normal. Right. But baseline, you know, you know, people's baseline, you know. They call once a week, you know, we get together for lunch every two weeks, what have you. Um, you want to really look out for those that you know and that you have relationships with, um, really backing off, uh, maybe isolating, may no, maybe no longer engaging in activities that they used to enjoy, uh, whether that be hobbies, you know, professional commitments, what have you. Um, but are they isolating? Um, are they writing and talking about death, dying, and suicide? You know, each time we see or hear somebody use that language, it's an opportunity for a conversation on the seriousness of that language. Um, are they blatantly threatening, threatening to kill themselves um, or expressing a wish to die? Um, I think sometimes with people with long-term mental illness challenges, that their caregivers and loved ones around them can start to become immune to hearing that regularly. And that was one of my biggest challenges um, as a probation officer. I would have teachers and parents say, you know, oh, you know, Jojo said they were going to kill themselves again. They're seeking attention. I need people to understand that people who use suicidal language or who threaten to kill themselves on a day to day basis are not seeking attention. They need attention. We don't always have the language 
to describe how we're feeling, right? And so oftentimes um, suicide may be the word that is used, but there may be some excruciating pain going on from some childhood trauma. There could be some other things going on, but people don't always know what language to use. But if somebody uses the word suicide or expresses a desire to die or kill themselves, it's an opportunity for us to have a conversation. Can you please tell me more? Explain to me what you mean by that. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Do you have a plan? Do you know when you're going to do this? And I know this sounds really uncomfortable for people. And there's a big misunderstanding that the more questions I ask, the more I'm going to put this in their head. And that is absolutely not the case. Research tells us, and we know, the more information we can gather, the more questions we can ask, the better we are equipped to deal with this. Does this mean I am calling 911? Does this mean I'm calling the family doctor and taking them in right away? Um, does this mean I can, I, do I feel safe to put them in my car, drive them to a crisis response center? You know, so... It's more about our uncomfortableness asking the questions than than really we are helping someone. So we have to kind of get over ourselves and be willing to ask those questions because who wants to hear a yes? I mean, we don't want to hear a yes, but goodness gracious, if we don't ask the question and they are feeling that way, they're alone and they may even complete an act of compulsion. And so we have to be willing to say something. And one of the things that I encourage, if you see these warning signs that we talked about and you ask the question is we really encourage you to ask again. So, I mean, Brandon, we're all guilty of this, right? We're walking down the hall. You see somebody, you know, you're like, hi, how are you? They're like, oh, hi, good. How are you? Fine. Knowing that you've had a bad day, you still say fine, right? People tell us what we want to hear sometimes. And so, you know, if you ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? And they're like, no. And you can say, you know, well, I've noticed, you know, you haven't been um, calling me regularly. I've noticed you haven't been attending um, our book club. I, and I'm concerned about you. And I'm just wondering, are you thinking about killing yourself? Ask again and use those I statements. Don't be like, you look like crap. You're not doing this. You're not, you know, you want to use those I statements because that just shows that you've noticed And you're not putting any blame or judgment on anybody. But I just want to know, because if you are, we can get you connected to the help that you need. Oftentimes people don't know that the way that they're feeling inside, that maybe there's a legitimate diagnosis for that. Maybe there's a legitimate treatment out there for that. Maybe there are things that I can do to help myself so I don't feel like this. And so I think it's really important that if we can just be willing to have those conversations with people, then they won't have to sit in that darkness and that pain alone. Definitely. Talking about the scenario of walking down the hallway with someone asking the other person how they're doing and they just respond fine. I've spent so many years of my life telling people I'm fine when inside I'm absolutely not okay. And at times I've wanted to end things. But it's very uncomfortable to talk to people about it in the first place. I think the second attempt really shows that you care and want to know what's going on in their life. We've talked a lot about the suicide prevention training, statistics, and warning signs. How can someone get help for suicide or opioid-related issues? Sure. 
So um, I am uh, lucky enough in my role that um, I um, am one of the co-chairs of the Montgomery County Prevention Coalition Opioid Prevention Branch, um, as well as uh, the lead of the Education Information Branch on the Community Overdose Action Team. Um, both of these organizations work really hard to make sure that we have a lot of educational information and that we have resources available so that if somebody needs help, they can get it. Um, so the first thing I would encourage people to do, particularly in the Montgomery County area, uh, is down to download the Get Help Now app. So this is an app. It's free of charge on Google Play or the iTunes store. Um, you can download this app and it has real time. You can get mental health treatment. You could get um, uh, a bed for residential treatment for addiction challenges. Um, you can also find things that can help you meet your basic needs. So Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, we know that if somebody doesn't know where they're gonna sleep or where they're gonna get their next meal, it's really hard to focus on your mental wellness, right? So maybe somebody needs help with getting some food in the house. Maybe they need some help um, securing housing. This app does it all. It's an awesome app, Local Help Now. Encourage everybody to download that, whether you're a consumer um, or whether you're just you know, somebody in the community or whether you're a behavioral health professional. That app, um, I have used it multiple times, personally and professionally. I also wanna make sure that people know that we have a local crisis response um, facility called Crisis Now. And the number is one 580 call. That's 833-580-CALL. And this is crisis now. You can call um, and you will have a licensed uh, professional on the phone. They can help you work through the crisis, whether it's yourself that you're experiencing it, or it's a family or member, a loved one, or a complete stranger around you. Um, you can call, you can get triage on the phone. They can help you de-escalate the situation. And if need be, they can send out a mobile response unit that can then help you support that person in crisis. And ultimately in the next month or two, there will be a facility that they'll be able to take individuals to so that they can triage, they can get um, them de-escalated, deal with the crisis at hand, and then get them connected to the professional help. Um, so really excited. It's super cutting edge and new in Montgomery County. The other thing that's really new that I think we need to spread word about is 988. So we've all known about 911 for quite some times, uh, quite some time here, but uh, 911 should really be used if somebody is in immediate danger, medical emergency, or a crime taking place, right? Um, and oftentimes what we see is that um, our officers are spending their time de-escalating mental health challenges. And oftentimes, unfortunately, um, they may end up in jail. And that is not where we want our people with mental health and addiction challenges is sitting in jail waiting treatment. Um, so you can call 988 if you have somebody that is in a mental health crisis and uh, they will connect to a local service provider, likely crisis now, um, but they can call them. And that way the law enforcement can focus on catching the bad guys, you know, and dealing with those medical emergencies and those kind of calls. Um, and we can get the individuals who are in the midst of a mental health or a substance use crisis connected to the treatment and the services that they need. So in Montgomery County, again, we have a wealth of resources. Not every community is this lucky. Um, but, you know, I cross counties for, I live in a different county. I have specialists in different counties. 
counties, uh, probably four or five different counties in the area. Um, so, you know, if you can't find the service in your area, please still download that app and come to Montgomery County if you can't find it locally. Absolutely. With your job, you are part of many committees. What career professionals make up the committees that you lead and are a part of as well? Are we mainly talking law enforcement and mental health professionals or are they more diverse? Yeah, so it's actually really cool because the Montgomery County Prevention Coalition and the Community Overdose Action Team um, have people represented from almost every sector in our community. So um, first and foremost, we have people with lived experience at the table, right? We need to have them there. Um, we have our behavioral health specialists. We have our law enforcement. Uh, we are looking to get more law enforcement involved in our prevention coalition, um, but we do have a few on there. We have teachers. We have neighborhood associates association presidents. We have um, elected officials. Um, so Commissioner Judy Dodge is really involved in, um, I have actually commissioners um, assistance and aides um, in each of the groups. And so they're reporting it back to the county commissioners and to the city commissioners um, and making sure that um, they're aware of what is happening on the front lines in our community and where we need the resources spread. Um, so actually, I mean, we have such a wide variety of members in both of those groups, and it is everybody, like I said, from lived experience to professionals in the behavioral health field, to teachers, to parents, um, to our elected officials, um, and everybody in between. Um, medical professionals, because obviously, you know, we want those subject matter experts at the table as well. So um you name it, we've got them at the table. Really exciting because I think a lot of people don't know um, that there are people having meetings and please help me because we have enough meetings, but there are a lot of important meetings that are going on on a day-to-day -day basis to talk about our mental health crisis, our substance use challenges in Montgomery County. And there are people working from the highest level all the way down to the boots on the ground to address these issues. I did want to mention just something that kind of shows this work that's been done, um, unfortunately, in 2022, so far, we have had 184 overdose deaths. Um, but that is down 20% from last year. So the things that are we're doing, the education, the harm reduction um, initiatives, all of those things um, are working. And so I'm very thankful to be a part of it and to be able to spread the word about what is going on in Montgomery County and what we are doing to help serve um, and empower um, our, our vulnerable populations. That's incredible. It's true. A lot of people who struggle with mental health and addiction feel stuck and may feel like their problems are not being addressed. But there are committees out there that are working to address the problems. Is there a way that anyone can join these committees or is there a process that you have to go through? So I would encourage people to go to uh, Montgomery County Prevention Coalition and um, I think it's preventionmc.org, if I'm correct. Um, but they can go there. You can uh, look at when our full coalition meetings are. And then there's a number of subcommittees. Like I said, I co-chair the opioid prevention, but we have alcohol prevention, marijuana prevention, suicide prevention. Um, we have a... Um, 
self-care. We have power-based violence. So people can find something that is close to their heart and their cause. Um, so yeah, please check out Montgomery County Prevention Coalition and uh, find out more about how to get involved there. That's awesome. I hope some people can get involved after listening to this. So I know you wanted to talk about self-care as far as mental health professionals having to take time to make sure that they are mentally well, and then people with mental health disorders who take time daily. What does self-care look like to you, and how can we learn more about self-care? Yeah. So, like I said, self-care wasn't something that was taught to me in college. It was something that it took tragedy for me to end up figuring out that I needed um, to put some things in place. And so for me... Um, Self-care is really taking time for myself, um, setting boundaries, um, and learning what feeds my soul. Um, we have a, a training that we do called You Can't Pour from an Empty Cup, and I would highly encourage somebody to check it out. And we talk about the six, six different types of self-care. So emotional self-care. What are those activities that we do that help us connect, process, and reflect on our emotions? Like engaging in therapy, journaling, uh, creating art, creating a podcast. Um, what about physical things, things that we do to improve our physical health? I know exercise is a four letter word to some people, but can we move our body every day? Do we actually take time to relax? Do we go see our doctor for our annual exams and preventative measures? Those are things that we can do. Spiritual, what are those things that we can do to nurture our inner spirit? Now, that can absolutely include whatever faith practice that you um, and involve yourself in, but that could also be meditation, relaxation, expressing gratitude. Um, mental, what kind of things do we do to challenge our mental um, status and challenge, stimulate our mind? Um, so reading a book, solving a puzzle, um, things like that that we enjoy to do. Um, what about social? This is the big one through COVID. How do we connect with other people? Um, you know, that can be family gatherings if it's safe to do so, maybe a lunch date, or we got really creative and we did Zoom Christmas parties, right? So we use the technology to work for us to connect with other people. But when they told us that we needed to um, that we needed to, you know, socially distance, we realized real quick, we needed to physically distance, but we needed to socially connect, even if that was uh, via phone, via Zoom. And then just some of those practical things that we can do. Those are the things that we do to like prevent future stress, right? Like, creating a budget, paying our bills, um, meal planning, maybe taking professional development classes, things like that. So there's a wide variety of, of things that you can do, but my biggest encouragement to people who are new in creating a self-care journey is to just start with one thing. One thing and do it for two weeks, it'll become habit. And then you can pick another thing. Sometimes people who start this try to do, you know, let me start eating right and exercising and meditating and doing all of this at once and it becomes overwhelming and it, they don't end up sticking with any of it. So, but my biggest thing is just try something, set those boundaries and take care of yourself because we know that the better we take care of ourselves, the better we can take care of our community and those around us that we serve. Absolutely. I'd like to encourage our viewers to try practicing self-care and take time for yourself when needed. I'd like to thank today's guest, Brittany Long, for taking time out of her day to join us. For more information on our podcast, visit our Instagram page under Empower Half an Hour. We hope you will be able to join us next time, and as always, hope you enjoy the rest of your day.